Father, we thank you that your word is light. A light to our path, a light to our feet. And so we pray that as we come to your word today, that it would be that. That it would be light in our lives. That it would confront us where we need to be confronted. That it would convict us where we need to be convicted. But also that it would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use the preaching of your word, the studying of your word today to draw our hearts more fully to Christ and to conform us more into his image. And we also pray, Lord, for our children who are here. For those of us who are parents, Lord, as we look at the world today, it seems like such a dark and scary place for children to be raised. And so we pray, Lord, that you would we pray, Lord, that your word would, would result in their salvation, the preaching of your word, that faith would come by hearing for them, for each one of our children, in order that they too would be a light in this dark world as they grow up. And of course, this is a prayer, Lord, for not only children outside of the womb, but even for children inside of the womb, that in your due time, you would draw them to Christ and that you would save them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. Use this time to strengthen and encourage us, O Lord, that we may be a light in the darkness for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 27 today. Um, I titled this sermon, How to Not Die in Your Sins. And the fact is, that answers the most pressing question that a person can ask. The, The most important question a person can ask is, how can I not die in my sins? So we're going to talk about that today. And as we continue our study in John's Gospel, let's start by imagining a scenario in which you are out in a forest, a a pitch black forest, late at night, and you're following a trail which you've lit with the, the light of your cell phone. But before long, the battery of your cell phone dies. It goes dead, and you haven't reached the end of the trail yet. There's not enough moonlight to see the path, and so you start to wander kind of aimlessly. And before long, you realize that you aren't even on the path anymore, and you don't know which way is which. You're completely turned around. You don't know which way you came from, and you don't know which way you're supposed to be going. You are hopelessly lost in the darkness. But then off in the distance, you see a light It's the flashlight of a man walking through the forest. And so you call out to him and you chase after him. And as you catch up to him, you explain to him that you are hopelessly lost. And he informs you that you have nothing to fear. He's been through this forest a thousand times or more. All you need to do is follow him. But as you listen to this man's voice... And as you start to look a little bit more closely at him, you suddenly see that this man is somebody you hate. 
In, in fact, he's your, your enemy, your mortal enemy. What do you do? Do you humble yourself, setting aside your, your pride to follow him and, and thus save yourself? Can you imagine how, how foolish, how hard-hearted, and not only that, but, but also how hateful the person must be who would say, I will not follow him. I'd rather remain lost in the darkness and die in the darkness. This has actually been the response of the Pharisees to Jesus' claim that he made earlier in chapter 8, back in verse 12, when he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. How did the Pharisees respond to that? Well, rather than following him, they challenged him openly and in vain, preferring to stay lost in the darkness. But the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, which took place at the Feast of Booths, wasn't over yet. Now we should notice, by the way, that this confrontation, which started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 7, has just continually, starting in the middle of chapter 7 to, to the present point, it's just become increasingly hostile. The, the Pharisees haven't been broken at all. In fact, they're becoming more and more hard-hearted and more and more hostile toward Jesus. However, the Pharisees haven't been able to stop Jesus, and they haven't been able to seize Jesus, and they haven't been able to prevent him from speaking because his hour had not come. That's what John keeps telling us. His hour had not come. We've seen that these Pharisees had the desire to silence Jesus, but they did not have the power to silence Jesus. So in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, this confrontation is going to continue. And it's going to continue to become increasingly hostile on behalf of the Pharisees, which will actually draw a very harsh rebuke from Jesus, a warning from Jesus that is both loving but also stern and unyielding. Now we should remember that the Scriptures never, ever offer even a morsel of comfort to the person who refuses to come to Christ in saving faith. And the Pharisees are no exception. They, they hate Christ. They hate Jesus. They refuse to come to Jesus. They refuse to yield themselves to him, either in obedience or in faith. And those things go hand in hand. And what comfort do the scriptures offer these Pharisees in their rejection of Jesus? What word of encouragement might they draw from God's word? Nothing. Absolutely none. Not even a single crumb of comfort is theirs to claim. All the Bible offers to the unbeliever is a warning of what is to come if they will not repent and savingly believe in Jesus Christ. And we will see that play out very plainly in our passage today. The point of this passage is that the light of the gospel is never guaranteed to keep shining as brightly as God has allowed to shine it before. Therefore, people should repent and believe in Jesus today so that should God remove the light of the gospel tomorrow, they will nevertheless be saved. And this is a timely passage for us in this current age, isn't it? As the American church is being silenced, as the American church is being shut down, as the American church is being threatened by governing officials. We have, friends, we have a tsunami wave of persecution headed straight at us. 
And while the light of the gospel has shined so brightly in our land for almost 250 years, the question that we have to be asking at this point is, as you look at the world and as you see the direction things are going, is will that light, will the light of the gospel continue to shine as brightly as it has? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know. What we do know, what we can say, is that we will shine as long as we can, and we will shine as brightly as we can. But we also understand that God's sovereign, don't we? We also understand that God may allow our light in this world to lessen. Not as a judgment against us as his people, but as a judgment against those who prefer darkness over light. The light of the gospel is never guaranteed to keep shining as brightly as God has allowed it to shine before. Therefore, people should repent and believe in Jesus now, today, lest God remove the light of the gospel tomorrow. The only, the only alternative is for a person to remain in darkness and to die in their sins. Jesus offers that same warning three times in our text today. The first instance is found immediately. Let's look at verses 21 and 22 of John chapter 8. John writes, Then he said again to them, I will go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. Now again, this is a continuation of the confrontation that's been going on for well over a chapter now, uh, where it says again here at the beginning of verse 22, uh, or verse 21, it says, then he said again. Uh, That's referring back to the previous chapter, where Jesus said in chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So he's basically repeating himself. He's not getting more hostile. He's not getting more aggressive. The Pharisees are. The Pharisees have shown that they are willing to defy their own laws. If you remember how Nicodemus tried to call them back to their own laws, back to to practicing their own laws in uh, the end of chapter 7, they've not only been willing to defy their own laws, but they've misused their laws. If you remember what we saw a couple weeks ago when they insisted that Jesus have two or three witnesses as if he were being formally charged with some kind of crime or sin. And at this point... To be straightforward, they just want to be done with Jesus. They just want him to to go away. They want him to be gone. And Jesus assures them here that they are going to get their wish. But once they get their wish, they will then wish that they hadn't wished what they were wishing. They're going to wish that he hadn't gone away. They're going to wish that they had listened. They're going to wish that they could have claimed for themselves what he had to offer. Jesus says, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this this same man that they are trying to shoo off or that they're trying to seize or or murder, more, uh, more accurately, I suppose, will be the same man that they will one day seek. But it'll be too late at that point. 
So the question is, why will they seek him? I mean, what does Jesus mean when he says this? After all, doesn't the Bible say that none seeks for God? It does. It does say that. So, so what does Jesus mean when he says that they will seek him but won't find him? Now, as we try to understand this, we should understand this biblical principle. That when Jesus is rejected, either people will depart from Jesus or Jesus will depart from the people. Let me say it again. When Jesus is rejected, either the people will depart from Jesus or Jesus will depart from the people. And we see that same thing play out time and time again throughout the course of the four Gospels. And so with that in mind, we see that Jesus is warning them that he will depart. He will remove the preaching of the gospel from them, and that when he does, these Pharisees will wish that he hadn't. See, the Pharisees are a picture of the natural man. The Pharisees are a picture of the unregenerate, the rebel, the sinner who will not come to Christ. They're totally lost in the darkness, and they wouldn't change a thing about that. They're mankind's natural condition. And it's the condition of anyone and everyone who does not follow Jesus, who only a few verses ago claimed to be the light of the world and promised that those who follow him will not be lost in the darkness. Do you remember what the, what the Bible says about the aspects of darkness? We covered this earlier on in this chapter. But we saw that it consists of foolishness, that it consists of wickedness, misery, and the outpouring of God's just and holy wrath. That's darkness. That's, that's the four aspects of darkness in Scripture. And so here is Jesus who is the light of the world, standing in their presence, shining the light of the gospel, shining his light ever so brightly, speaking of the way out of the darkness. And all these men can do is act like cockroaches scurrying back into the darkest corner that they can find. But here's the thing, friends. The darkness that men love by nature is a darkness that does not get better. It's a darkness that only gets progressively darker. It, it never gets better. People in darkness are, are naturally drawn toward light, and these, phys, these Pharisees are, are, are no exception, but when they realize that Jesus is that light, they turn away. And thus they will not find relief from their foolishness, from their wickedness, from their misery, or from the wrath of God, because those things are only found in Christ. But will they want relief from those things? They will but they won't find it because relief from those things is only found in Christ. See, these Pharisees, like the people we're surrounded by in our world today, they're very religious people. And that might sound kind of crazy to say that people in our, in our world today, in our culture today, are, are very religious. You might say that the people in our culture are very anti-religion. It's just a different form of religion. They're just anti-Christianity. They are very religious, but their, their religion sees humanity as good and as being capable of solving all the world's problems. Uh, that, that's the, the, the humanist manifesto, is that we can solve all of our problems. We don't need God. And so they see no need for Jesus. They see no need for the gospel. 
They, they will want to accomplish social change, perhaps, and they want the world to be a better place, okay. But it's only the gospel that changes hearts. How are you going to change society apart from changing hearts? And the gospel, the preaching of the gospel is the only thing. That's the, that's the means that God has ordained to change hearts. Only the gospel has the power to change us, to change natural man from rebels who hate God and who hate each other into friends of God and who love and desire God and who love each other. See, friends, all the things these Pharisees are seeking, all the things that the world is seeking, the good of society, maybe personal purpose, personal meaning for their lives, those things are all only found in their truest sense in Jesus Christ. And yet these same people want Jesus and his gospel to be silenced. They want the church to be silenced. They don't want the gospel to be preached. If you shut churches down and threaten and imprison Christians in an effort to silence the gospel, all these things that they're seeking, they have no chance of finding. Because those things are only found in Christ. And Christ is found through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes through hearing. As Richard Phillips notes, when preaching has ended and Jesus has gone, all will seek, but none will find. End quote. The light of the gospel, friends, is never guaranteed to keep shining as brightly as God has allowed it to shine before. Therefore, people should repent and believe in Jesus today, lest God remove the light of the gospel from their lives tomorrow. The sad reality is that most people don't find out until it's too late. That the things that they want are found in their truest and ultimate sense only in Jesus. We must be warned of the reality as we consider this, that it is possible for a person to seek Christ in vain. One day, one day, that would be the, ways that the, the, the way that the Pharisees would seek him, in vain. And I fear that there are many in our world today who seek in the same vanity. See, it's possible to want the comfort that Jesus brings and yet to keep one's heart cold toward the discomfort of conviction of sin. It's possible to desire the safety that Christ brings but to reject him as a savior. The issue really boils down to motivation. See, if a person isn't driven to Christ with a contrite, humble spirit, if they're driven by a desire for the blessings that Christ offers, the, the blessings and the benefits of Christ, but, but shun the burden of bearing the cross that Christ requires they carry, then they seek in vain. Oh, it is possible for a person to seek Christ in vain. All a person can do is seek the Lord with a pure heart, for the right reasons while he's near. Seek him for who he is and not for what's in it for you. And you'll discover that this kind of seeking, seeking Christ for Christ and not for the things that he offers, that kind of seeking, 
seeking Christ for who he is, is never, ever, ever done in vain. Such a person will never be said to have died in their sins. But this is not the way that the Pharisees will seek him. They will seek him in vain. What an interesting response we see from them. He's he's just given them a very stern warning, something that should scare their socks off, right? Something that should kind of sober them up to the reality that they are hell-bound, that they're going to die in their sins. He's given them this this crazy warning, very scary warning, that they will die in their sins, followed by a warning that where he's going, they cannot come. And their response is to joke and jest that Jesus must be talking about a plan to kill himself. See, they think that Jesus is saying that he's going to hell. And they don't think that that's a place that they can go. Unregenerate man never does. In their tradition, in the, in the tradition of the Pharisees, somebody who committed suicide not only could not be redeemed, but they would be sent to the lowest and hottest and most miserable place in hell. Now, of course, they completely missed what Jesus was saying. He was saying that he was going to return to the Father in heaven, that he would ascend to the right hand of the Father, which was a place where they could not come. They could not come to heaven. Why not? Why couldn't they come there too? And the answer is because their righteousness wasn't enough. Their righteousness was insufficient. The Pharisees are actually a perfect illustration of the danger of trusting in our own righteousness. It's insufficient. It's not enough for entry into heaven's gates. And these were men who were spending their lives thinking that their righteousness would be sufficient on that day when they stood before God. Let us never ever make that same mistake, friends. And yet we see people do it all the time. Every time they reject the gospel, that's what they're doing. They're relying on on something about themselves rather than the grace of God. People think that because God is love, they'll accept them for who they are, regardless of their rejection of Christ. The problem with that is, no, the, the rejection of Christ is actually the vilest of all sins. Think of the most vile sin you can think of. Rejecting Christ is more vile. Do you want to go where Christ was going? To heaven? Then you must have a righteousness that is greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And you know who has a righteousness that's greater than the Pharisees? Not you. Not me. Definitely not me. Not these Pharisees. Jesus does. And only Jesus does. You must have his righteousness credited to you. How how will that happen? How will you gain Christ's righteousness? How will you possess it? How will you own it? How will you stand in his righteousness when you stand before God one day? And the answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, the first lesson we gain from this passage, and and this is such an important lesson, is to not seek Christ in vain, but to seek him with a pure heart, 
a heart that loves Christ, a heart that desires Christ more than it loves and more than it desires the blessings of Christ. Desire Christ first, and both He and every heavenly blessing are yours. But if you desire the blessings of Christ more than you desire Christ Himself, you will die in your sins. Seek Him while He may be found today, because you don't know if you'll be able to find Him tomorrow. Jesus responds to this blasphemous joke, or whatever it is, by the Pharisees with sternness. He doesn't play along. Let's look at verses 23 and 24. John writes, And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So again, we find Jesus warning the Pharisees that they will die in their sins if they continue to reject him. In fact, we, we saw it once back in, uh, in verse 21, and now we see it here twice in verse 24. And as we see this warning repeated three times in this passage, we should see that it's a central aspect of the warning to the Pharisees. Not only to the Pharisees, but to anyone and, and to everyone who, like the Pharisees, reject Jesus, whether that's in the first century Israel or 21st century America, the same warning applies to everyone who refuses to believe in Christ. See, the truth of the matter is that there have always been only two ways to die. Either you die in your sins or you die in Christ. Everyone, everybody, no exceptions, everybody enters into eternity in one of those two conditions, in their sins or in Christ. Dead in their sins or alive in Christ. That's the good news, isn't it? The good news is when we repent and believe in Jesus, a person crosses over from death to life through faith. We cross over from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. Now it's clear that Jesus understood what they were saying when they were mocking him. The joke about him killing himself, insinuating that he must be going to hell since he's going someplace they can't go. He understood the implications, and so in correcting them, he shows them the vast difference between himself and the Pharisees, and not only the difference between himself and the Pharisees, but the difference between himself and anyone and everyone who rejects Christ. He says, they're from below, he's from above. They're, they're of this world, he's not of this world. Totally different, T totally different spheres. Now, in the most literal sense, we all understand that Jesus and only Jesus uh, alone can make those kinds of claims. There, there's nobody else in all of human history who can truly say that they are from above and that they are not of this world. Christ alone condescended from heaven's throne to take on flesh and to live amongst mankind. Jesus is unique in that sense, so we understand that. Jesus is unique in this sense. As John the Baptist declared of Christ back in chapter 3, verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is 
from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So only Jesus can truly say that in the fullest sense. But in a lesser sense, what Jesus says of himself here is something that you and I and every Christian should be able to say of themselves as well. Remember that Jesus told Nicodemus back in John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember also that the word that gets translated as again can also be translated as from above. That's the origin of the gift of life in Christ that we've been given. Just as there is an enormous difference between Christ and these men of the world, so too there should be a vast difference between those Christ has redeemed, those born from above, and those of the world. See, the the thoughts of the redeemed and the reprobate are one area where this difference is very, very noticeable. See, when we think about things, there's a certain pattern, and when they think about things, there's a totally different pattern. When we start thinking about things, it starts with, for example, recognizing a desire that we have. But we, we, we look at that desire, we take that desire, and we measure it against God's Word. We see, what does God's Word say about this desire or this ambition that I have? But when you're talking about somebody who's unregenerate, when you're talking about the natural man, okay, they, they take their desire, but what do they measure it by? What standard do they measure whether or not they should do this desire by? Not God's Word. I mean, maybe their conscience, although uh, we all know that the unregenerate are more than happy to sear their consciences by acting against it. Maybe uh, the laws of society, although laws don't stop people from breaking laws. Uh, We see people going 36 and a 35, right? Maybe they think that it'll gain them approval from man. Maybe they think, you know, they're thinking in terms of what others will think of them. I mean, these are all things that the natural man will consider as he considers his desire. But all of these things are subjective, All of these things are sinking sand. All of these things are changing. They're subjective measures that people use in their decision-making. Whereas for the Christian, we have something unchanging, something objective to measure our desires and ambitions against. And because our thinking is different, our perception of things is different. See, we we perceive an action to be good because God says it's good. We perceive an action to be evil because God says it's evil. But the unregenerate will have no issue with calling good evil and with calling evil good because in their minds, they've suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness, thereby making themselves the highest authority in their lives. That's one of the reasons they suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. So the unregenerate are not only from this world, and they're not only in this world, but they're of it. As Christians, we we might be from the world in in one sense. We might be in the world, but God forbid that we be of the world. There should be a vast difference between the, the life of a Christian and the life of somebody who's not a Christian. May it never be that we 
think and perceive and speak and act the way the world does. May, may we never think that that's acceptable for us, for ourselves. One final thing. We value different things than the world does. We love different things and we hate different things than the world does. One of the things that we value as Christians, do we not, is the preaching of the gospel, right? We, we know the value of it. We understand the value of it. We understand that the preaching of the gospel is the only way that a man can be made right with God. We understand that. We understand that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But what does the world think of the preaching of the gospel? Non-essential. Right? They think, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, they think it's foolishness. They think it's foolishness. That's all that the gospel appears to be for those who remain in the darkness. Now, given the fact that marijuana dispensaries and abortion clinics have been allowed to stay open during the last four months of this pandemic, and that churches have not been allowed to stay open, at least not in all places, we can ultimately trace those types of policies that prevent the preaching of the gospel back to the issue of values. Let me ask you this. Should we expect an unregenerate person to value the preaching of the gospel over keeping pot shops open to the public? No, of course not. That's, that's the way the world thinks. They're thinking in terms of tax dollars. You know, that's, that's how, that's how the, uh, the, the marijuana business, the marijuana dispensaries uh, got there in the first place, is that there are huge government kickbacks. And so they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to it. We'll take the, we'll take the money. So if, if the world sees the preaching of the gospel this way, very low on the totem pole, not as important as keeping pot shops open. Not as important as keeping abortion clinics open. If that's the way they see the preaching of the gospel, then why would we ever allow the decision as to whether or not the church should stay open and operating to be left in the hands of someone who not only sees no value in it, but who thinks it's foolishness? The true Christian would be wise to remember the chasm that exists between those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. J.C. Ryle says this of the Christian as he considers that vast difference between the Christian and the world. He says, quote, If he loves his soul and desires to serve God, he must be content to find himself separated from many around him by a gulf that cannot be passed. He may not like to seem peculiar and unlike others, but it is the certain consequence of grace reigning within him. He may find it brings on him hatred, ridicule, and hard speeches, but it is the cup which his master drank and of which his master forewarned all of his disciples. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He continues saying, then let the Christian never be ashamed to stand alone and show his colors. He must carry the cross if he would wear the crown. If he has within him a new principle from above, it must be seen, end quote. It is tragic that an unregenerate person would choose 
to die in their sin. But if he will not follow the light of Christ, if he loves sin so much that he would choose to remain in his natural state of darkness, then he will die in his sin. And he will face the consequences of his rejection of Christ one day when he stands before God Almighty in judgment. On that day, he will seek and he will desire the grace and the forgiveness and the redemption that Christ offers, but he will seek without finding it. So how can a person escape this judgment? Jesus tells us right here in this, in this, uh, this passage, by believing in Christ. By believing in Christ. He says, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, actually the word he where it says, I am he, that, that's not in the Greek text. So Jesus is once again claiming to be the great I am. Unless you believe that I am, is what he says. The way to escape God's terrible day of judgment and wrath is to believe that Jesus is the great I am. To believe that Jesus is Jehovah God. And to cast themselves on his mercy entirely. But here's the thing, the clock's ticking. You have one day less of life remaining than you had yesterday, and tomorrow is never promised for anyone. So you must repent today while you can, while the light of the gospel is shining on you. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. See, if a person dies in their sin... It is in that condition that they will face God's judgment. But for those who have believed in Christ, they will stand before God, not in their sins, but they will stand before God in Christ, fully forgiven, because Christ has paid their sin debt. That's why we can say with Paul in full confidence, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us understand what Jesus is saying here. He's preaching the good news to these people. He's preaching the good news to his enemies. And it was entirely by grace that Jesus continued to preach to them despite their rejection, despite their attempts to seize him and to silence him, despite their hatred of him, and despite them mocking him openly to his face. It was grace. It was grace, but, but that's not how they see it, is it? That's never the way the world sees it. That's why they don't like being preached at. Because they don't see it for the grace that it is. They don't see that preaching the gospel is an act of mercy and grace, and, and they still don't to this very day. It's the same with the Pharisees. It's the same with the natural man today. And so once again, these Pharisees respond with hostility toward Jesus. Let's look at verse 25. John writes, So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What, I have, been saying to you, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So the question that, that they ask here, that they start out with in verse 25, who are you? That, that's not an honest question we should see. 
we, we should see that they, they aren't they aren't asking that as if they don't know. They, they know exactly who he is. That's why they've responded with such hostility toward him. What they're saying in, in our vernacular, if we were to put this in, in our own language that we might use today, it's probably closer to something like, who do you think you are? Or, or, or who are you to be preaching to us like this? So it, it implies, what, they, what they're saying here implies an outright rejection, not only of who he is, but because they're rejecting who he is, they're also rejecting what he's offered them. And Jesus answers them, telling them that he's exactly who he claimed to be. He's God incarnate, just as he had claimed. And he assures them that while he will be going away soon, he still has a lot to say. He's still got some preaching to do. And since they had rejected him and his, his glorious gospel, he had much judgment to speak against them. Their rejection of him was not going to stop him. Their rejection of him was not going to silence him. No, the Father had sent him with a message and with a work to be accomplished. And these foolish men who were lost in darkness and wouldn't want it any other way, these foolish men were not going to stand in the way of Jesus being faithful to what the Father had given him to do and to say to the world. And similarly, friends, as God's people who are called to be salt and called to be light in this world, it might not always feel like we have a lot to do or say, but as you look at the world today, we have our work cut out for us, don't we? And it's hard. It's hard to be salt and light in this world. Salt prevents rot. But as we look at the world, we see, oh, man, this world is already so rotten. Light shines in the darkness, but this world is doing everything it can to not only darken the darkness, but to extinguish the light of the gospel. In our country, in certain places, if you want to gather 500 or 1,000 people to study the Bible, well, that's forbidden. But if you want to get 500 or 1,000 people together to burn Bibles, you get approval. Is that not ludicrous? It's sending contradicting messages. It's, it's obviously and blatantly hypocritical. But here's the thing. Given what we know about the world, would we expect anything different? That's exactly why we have much to do and much to say in this world. Even though the world hates the preaching of the gospel. Richard Phillips says this in his commentary. He says, quote, When the world tells us to stop preaching, we act as though we had no reply, as though we could not preach the gospel without its permission. But God has given us our message, and so we have much to say to the world. We have the Bible's message about God and man, life and death, truth and error, and salvation and judgment. When the world scorns us, saying, Who do you think you are to speak that way? We must reply, I have much to say because I serve the Lord Jesus and follow his example example, your rejection of God's truth will not stop me from speaking. End quote. You see, friends, Jesus wasn't shaken by the hostility of the Pharisees or by their rejection of him because he knew where his message originated. He knew where it came from. Where did it come from? It came from God. And the same is true of the church today. The same is true of the church today. We, we preach the word of God. We simply say what it says. 
affirm what it affirms, deny what it denies. And thus, just as, as Christ was undaunted and kept preaching, we too must remain undaunted and continue proclaiming the message that God has given us to proclaim. That's why we are here. That's why we're here right now, today. That's why some of you are tuned in online, watching. That's why we all exist, to communicate God's message and to glorify Him in doing so. Some people think that if the church is just nice enough that the world will listen. People who think that way, I'm not sure what they do with Jesus being so stern and so straightforward with these people here. The world would say He's not being very nice here. Nevertheless, some people think that if the church is just nice enough, the world will listen. Well, listen, one of the things we do as a church is we provide a community food exchange table for people who need something to eat. We've got the highest rate of unemployment in Washington state history, and so people have trouble making ends meet. And so we have this table out here that has food. There is always food available to anyone in need every day, every hour of every day. Well, this past week, somebody started leaving some stuff on the table for us to look at, or maybe just to distribute to whoever goes to the table. The first was a children's illustrated book of Darwin, Darwinian theory. The second thing somebody left is this right here. This is a magazine from FFRF, the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And they wrote on the front, do not discard, please read and or share, no matter if the topic appeals to you or not. Well, if nothing else does, I think that kind of proves that being nice doesn't always mean anything to the world. But the thing is, we aren't called to be nice. We're not called to be nice. That might shock you. It sounds very counter what Scripture says, but we are not called to be nice. We're called to do something better than to be nice. We're called to be gentle. We're called to be kind. But we're not called to be nice, and there is a difference. We're called to something higher, something better. We are called to love. And the way to express that love, not only for God, but for our neighbor, is to preach the message that offers them light in the darkness. The message that holds the power of God unto salvation. Which sometimes means speaking very sternly and very straightforwardly as Jesus has done here in our passage. But here's the thing. Either way, silence is never an option for us. You want to throw me in prison for preaching? Great, I'll, I'll start a prison ministry. It's that simple. Silence is never an option. And you'd better believe, friends, that we are entering into a season in this nation's history in which holding this kind of conviction is so important for all of us. Because the Bible offers no exception clauses when it comes to obeying God. The Bible doesn't say preach the gospel and make disciples unless or until the culture hates you so much that they threaten you or they imprison you, or the, gospel just, the preaching of the gospel just doesn't have the, the intended effect any longer. This is why we preach God's word, because it always produces God's intended effect. Maybe not from our perspective, 
But from God's perspective, does, does his word ever not accomplish what he attends, intends for it to accomplish? Does his word ever return void to him? No. Never. Friends, this world is growing darker and darker. We've noticed, right? We've all noticed. But our message remains the same. And we cannot accommodate the world when it comes to faithfully heralding the gospel message. If you're here today or if you're listening today and you have never believed in Jesus, if you're wondering why you should listen to us, why you should prepare to stand before God one day, the answer is simply this. It's because you're going to stand before God one day. And if you continue to reject Christ, you will stand before him in your sin. What that means, to stand before God in your sin, to be dead in your sin, means that the burden of your sin, the debt of your sin, is still on you. The debt is unpaid. But the good news The gospel is that God offers grace, redemption, and forgiveness to all who will repent and believe in Christ. If you will do that, if if you will believe in Christ, your sin will be cast upon Christ, credited or, or imputed entirely to him. And in exchange, Christ's perfect, sinless righteousness will be cast upon you credited entirely to you. But the clock's ticking. And none of us, none of us have forever. You don't know when your time on earth will expire. And thus you must seek the Lord now, while he is near, while the light of the gospel is shining on you. The light of the gospel is never guaranteed to keep shining as brightly as God has allowed it to shine before. Therefore, you must repent and believe in Jesus today so that should God remove the light of the gospel tomorrow, you will nevertheless be saved because you will not be dead in your sins. But by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you will be alive in Christ. And you'll stand in His righteousness when you stand before God someday. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you for the confidence that it always does what you intend it to do. It never returns to you void. It is always, always accomplishing your work whether that be converting sinners or transforming those of us who are in Christ more into the likeness of Christ. And so we pray, Lord, first of all, that it would have that effect on us, that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ as we think about your word and as we study your word. But we also pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to share this good news with our neighbors. And not only give us the courage, but the wisdom and the straightforwardness when necessary. Give us grace to do it in a way that, to share the gospel in a way that that glorifies Christ. 
Oh, Father, we thank you for the promise that you are with us even in the midst of this darkness. Even though we dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light to us. Your word is a light to us. And we thank you for that. Teach us to walk in your ways, in the light of your ways in this world, in order that we would be seen as different, but also in order that the world would see that we have a hope that they don't. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.